0: It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's a n a b e icom Offers are subject to change, and certain restrictions may apply.
1: Discover FX's Shogun, the official podcast, available now. Every legend begins with a story. Listen and explore, episode by episode, this story of war, passion, and power set in feudal Japan. Join host Emily Yoshida each week with the creators, cast, and crew in this exclusive companion podcast. They dive deep into the twists and turns of the plot, go behind the scenes, and explore the real-life history that informed the limited series based on James Clavell's best-selling novel. Search FX's Shogun wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Ferguson.
2: At Ferguson, your project is our priority. Whether you're building a new home or working on a remodel, Ferguson showrooms are designed to inspire. Ferguson Associates are experts. They can help with bath, kitchen, lighting projects, and just so much more. And they can help you pick out the perfect products. They can help get your orders facilitated, and they can even manage delivery coordination. They work with builders and remodelers, designers, and homeowners to make sure that every project runs smoothly start to finish. They're going to take care of the details, so you're happy. Book your one-on-one appointment at
1: fergusonshowrooms.com to get started.
2: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Tracy, I have to swear to you up front that I am not vacuum obsessed. Well, I didn't think you were, so it's okay. <laughs> But it might seem like that because vacuums are coming up again. Uh, it was a total accident, though. But what we are talking about today is a 17th century Italian gentleman who successfully created a vacuum in a lab. In this case, we're talking about a real vacuum, not a vacuum cleaner. <laughs> yes, which, as we discussed
1: in the vacuum cleaner episode, does not it's actually not a real vacuum. vacuums. Yeah, Uh, And the person we're talking
2: about today is Evangelista Torricelli, and he was born in the middle of a really heady few decades when the lives and work of people like Galileo and Johannes Kepler and René Descartes and Blaise Pascal and Isaac Newton were all changing humankind's understanding of the world and the heavens. So sometimes Torricelli gets lost in the mix, but he is actually connected to Galileo, and he made his own significant contributions to science and mathematics. So that is who we are going to talk about today.
1: Evangelista Torricelli was born on October fifteenth, sixteen 1608, in Faenza, Italy. That's in the Romagna region. And today, this region is called Emilia-Romagna. It's got a pretty similar footprint to the area when Torricelli was born. Faenza is about 31 miles or 50 kilometers southeast of Bologna. His parents were Gaspar and Caterina Angetti Torricelli, and Gaspar worked in textiles. He made a pretty meager living for the family in that industry, and that eventually included two more children after Evangelista.
2: Because Evangelista was quite smart, uh, at a very early age he was sent to live with his uncle, Brother Jacopo, who was a Camaldolese monk. And through that uncle, Torricelli received early education and then was enrolled in a Jesuit college in 1624 at the age of 16. There is some debate. Uh, over whether he was enrolled in a school in Rome or in Faenza, but he did end up in Rome, which might have been right after his schooling was completed.
1: By the end of 1626, though, not only was Evangelista in Rome, but his mother was also. His father had died at some point before that, so she and her eldest son were both there in the city at the same time until Caterina died in 1641. Eventually, his two younger brothers moved there as well, and there's been some supposition that maybe they all moved there together to be with Evangelista after Gaspar's death. None of this is really documented one way or the other, though.
2: Yeah, there are a lot of, like, that would make sense about his personal life story (laughs) that we just don't really know. Uh, But Torricelli was born right in the middle of Galileo's lifetime, and the work of the older scholar was very highly influential on Evangelista, and he was eventually able to connect with the man that he so admired thanks to his association with another great mind of 17th-century Italy.
1: Through his uncle, Torricelli was connected to Benedetto Castelli. Castelli, like Evangelista's uncle, had lived in a monastery. He had changed his first name from Antonio to Benedetto when he entered the Benedictine order in the 1590s. Castelli had helped get Discourse on Floating Bodies by Galileo published and had gained the position of Professor of Mathematics at the University of Pisa in 1613. He had been recommended for that position by Galileo. In 1626, he moved to Rome and he started teaching at the University of Sapienza, and that's where his story and Torricelli's meetup. Evangelista's uncle arranged for Castelli to keep Torricelli's education going in mathematics and astronomy and physics, and in exchange, Torricelli worked as Castelli's secretary and assistant, helping with experiments, taking notes, things like that. As Castelli
2: and Galileo corresponded with some regularity, Torricelli finally got a chance to connect with his idol when Galileo sent a letter to Castelli in 1631, and that was at a time that Castelli was traveling. As his secretary, Torricelli took advantage of the opportunity that presented itself, and he wrote back to Galileo in a letter dated September 11th, 1632.
1: So this letter that he wrote back, it's definitely more than kind of a, hey, my boss is out, but I'll let him know that you got in touch. Uh, It went way beyond that type of a communication. Torricelli introduced himself. He talked about his own work and his interests and about the mathematicians that he had studied, and he said that he believed in the idea of heliocentrism as Copernicus had laid it out. He also told Galileo that he had read and studied Galileo's own work. This letter is really where the small amount that we know about Torricelli's early life comes from. He told Galileo about studying with the Jesuits before becoming Castelli's student and secretary, He also let Galileo know that Castelli had been working in the intellectual and religious circles of Rome to try to make sure that Galileo was not condemned for his recent work, Dialogue Concerning the Two Chief World Systems.
2: Yeah, that was uh, a bit controversial because even though Copernicus had died at this point more than 100 years earlier, his ideas still garnered a lot of ire. And that played out right in front of Torricelli. Torricelli. Galileo himself was put on trial in 1633, not long after Torricelli sent that letter for countering the Catholic Church's insistence that the Earth was the center of the universe. The Diogolo, as the recent controversial work by Galileo was known in shorthand in Italy, was outlawed. He was found to be heretical in his views and he was sentenced to imprisonment. That imprisonment, which we will mention again in just a bit, was commuted to isolation at home. Evangelista not only followed this trial due to his own interest, but also at the request of Castelli, who was still away from Rome himself, and he wanted regular updates on how the trial was going from his student. So it's not really surprising that even though Copernican concepts were ceaselessly fascinating to Torricelli, he opted to focus on the much safer field of mathematics after watching Galileo's trial for defending the ideas of the long-dead philosopher.
1: We don't know very much about Torricelli's personal life at all over the next several years, but we do know that he worked for Giovanni Campoli. That was another friend of Galileo's. Campoli was a priest who had been instrumental in getting Galileo's controversial work published. He had lost his position in Rome for taking part in this whole heresy. He was exiled from Rome and served as governor of various locations around Italy. And we know that Torricelli accompanied him to at least one of those posts, which was Montalto delle Marche. And during this period, we also know that Torricelli
2: was working on a number of ideas which would eventually be published but not until the mid-1640s. One segment of that book that would eventually happen was titled De Motu Gravium. You'll also see it just as De Motu. That translates to of motion or motion of weight. And this was a treatise on mechanics that Torricelli was inspired to write after reading and studying the works of Galileo on the matter, specifically the parabolic motion of projectiles. And it got the famed philosopher and astronomer's attention. But this was once again through Torricelli's association with Castelli.
1: When meeting with Castelli later in 1641, Evangelista showed his teacher and mentor this treatise, and Castelli was impressed enough that he wrote to Galileo about it. That letter was dated March 2nd, 1641. Castelli tells Galileo that he will, quote, bring him a book written by a disciple of mine, who has demonstrated many of those propositions de motu which your lordship had already demonstrated, but differently, constructing marvelously on the same material. And that kind of becomes uh, really the thing that you'll
2: hear echoed throughout the rest of this as how Torricelli's work went. He was usually working on something that Galileo had been working on and then kind of just shifted it and took his own approach to it. But Castelli brought a copy of this writing to Galileo during an approved visit to Archetri in Florence, where Galileo was living out his house arrest. And at this point, Galileo was in pretty poor health, and his eyesight was failing. And as a way to ensure that the work that the master was doing was not lost, Castelli suggested that Galileo should have someone to assist him. And as a consequence of that discussion and this paper, Torricelli was invited by Galileo, his idol, to move to Florence and work alongside him.
1: We'll talk about what happened after that invitation after we pause for a quick sponsor break.
3: You're listening to this podcast, so I know you care about history and what a period we're living through right now, specifically when it comes to the situation in Israel and Gaza. Right now, you're hearing a lot of loud voices screaming about genocide, massacre, and occupation. But these words, slogans, and various headlines are not enough to help you understand what is happening over there. And that's where this podcast comes in. Check out Unpacking Israeli History. Catch up on previous seasons and enjoy new episodes from Season 6 each week, where they cover many of the topics that are relevant to what's going on in Israel today. From the history of infamous terror groups like Hamas and Hezbollah, to the story of Nakba, to Israel's disengagement from Gaza in 2005, There's so much to uncover. Unpacking Israeli history cuts through the noise and helps you understand Israel's present through understanding Israel's history. So educate yourself. Learn the history behind the headlines. Find Unpacking Israeli history wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: We mentioned right before the break that Torricelli was invited by Galileo to work with him. This, of course, is like, you know, the dream job. But Torricelli only got to work with his idol for a few months, in part because it took a long time and some wavering, actually, to accept this offer. First, Torricelli was teaching Castelli's classes while Castelli was away from Rome, and he was adamant that he could not leave until his mentors return. And then Torricelli's mother died, which kept him from Florence even longer but he also may have actually been a little bit hesitant to throw in his lot with a man who was living under house arrest for heresy. In September of that year, Galileo wrote a letter to Torricelli that sounds sort of resigned, that this young man is never coming, in which he tells (laughs) this younger man that he regrets that he will not ever be able to give him his praise in person.
1: Galileo really lays it on pretty thick in this letter. Here is part of it, quote, I was looking forward to paying this duty and debt to you in person, living in the hope that I might have this pleasure for some days before my life, already close to the end, should be over. In a most loving letter of yours, your lordship gave me no small hope that this desire of mine might be fulfilled, but I detect no hint of confirmation in your last letter. Rather, from what I understand from your other letter, written to the most reverend Father Castelli and sent to me, opened— I have very little or nothing left alive in this hope of mine. I don't want to have to try to hold back those good encounters and events that must justly happen to one of your valor, so far elevated above the common sciences. But I will tell you with sincere affection that the merit of your peregrine mind might also be recognized here, and my low hovel might not be a less comfortable abode for you than some of the most sumptuous, because I am sure that you will not find the affection of the host more fervent in any other place than in my breast. And I know well that to true virtue, this is more pleasing than any other comfort.
2: (laughs) I feel like this is the the master document that every manipulative relative has ever sent another. (laughs) Like, it's okay that you don't want to visit. I'm just dying. and I'm so old and I love you so much, but... You know, I understand. You have a life to live. (laughs) I love it so much. And uh, this was a very effective move, because Evangelista left for Florence just a few days after he got this letter. And he finally got to Archetri in early October 1641. But Galileo died on January 8th, 1642, so not long after Torricelli joined him.
1: So this loss was probably a huge disappointment. He really did not get to spend a lot of time with his mentor, but this also worked out well for Torricelli's career. He was named Galileo's successor at the Florentine Academy as a professor of mathematics. He was also made court mathematician to Tuscany's Grand Duke Ferdinando II. He held that title for the rest of his life. And yes, for the people doing the timeline math, that does mean that he spent the rest of his life in the service of the Medicis. Prior to these positions being offered, Torricelli had been planning to go back to Rome, but he ended up staying in Florence permanently. He had a stable income and time to focus, so this started a very productive phase of his life. In
2: 1644, Torricelli was still working on some of those ideas that he and Galileo had discussed, and one of those ended up making him famous. That was an experiment with mercury. But it was catalyzed by a real-world problem that Galileo had been working on near the end of his life. So the story goes that well diggers in Tuscany were having a problem, and they turned to the greatest mind of the time for help. And that problem was that they were attempting to raise water with lift pumps, but found that they were only able to raise it to a certain point, about 10 meters. If they attempted to raise the water any
1: higher than that, it fell away from the pump plunger. I remember watching basically this demonstration on Mr. Wizard's World. (laughs) Yes. Whether that specific tale of the pumps coming to Galileo's attention is really true, sometimes it's attributed as being relayed through Ferdinando II, he was definitely working with pumps and water and discovering that he could only lift water so high. He wrote of his experiments, quote, When I first noticed this phenomenon, I thought the machine was out of order but the workman whom I had called in to repair it told me the defect was not in the pump, but in the water, which had fallen too low to be raised through such a height. And he added that it was not possible either by pump or by any other machine working on the principle of attraction to lift water a hair's breadth above 18 cubits. Whether the pump be large or small, this is the extreme limit of the lift."
2: So Galileo had some theories about this matter, as he would when he uh, attacked any kind of problem. And he also, you know, had some, some knowledge and theories about the field of hydrostatics. And he was, of course, as we always talk about, incorporating and building on the work done by other writers and thinkers, including Flemish scientist and mathematician Stevanus, who had gained an understanding of fluid dynamics in his work on waterways in the Netherlands. But even though he was reading as much as he could about it and, you know, putting forth as many ideas and trying to work it out, Galileo died before he could solve this pump problem. He had kind of been on the wrong track, actually. He was focusing on the weight of the water and was comparing that to a rope being pulled so hard in both directions that it snapped.
1: Torricelli's experiment was carried out by his assistant, Vincenzo Viviani, and it used a long glass tube. It was 4 feet or 1.2 meters long and less than an inch or 2.54 centimeters in diameter. He filled it up with mercury, and when he inverted it, he placed the open end into a container that also contained mercury. When he did this, some of the mercury flowed out of the tube, but a lot of it did not. According to Torricelli's measurements, 76 centimeters of the tube was still filled with mercury, And this empty space at the closed end of the tube, which was pointing upward, that was a vacuum. This was the first time that a vacuum had been purposely created in a lab, and this phenomenon is known today as a Torricellian vacuum.
2: So keep in mind, this entire experiment was something of a marvel, just in terms of, like, materials logistics. Uh, a meter-long glass tube was not super easy to come by or work with. Its fragility was a concern, particularly when filling it with mercury. And he actually came up with two different shapes on the end because he wanted to show that the shape of the tube was not what was causing this whole thing to work.
1: We would also be very concerned today about the danger inherent in the mercury, but that you was just not quite as much of ever. a
2: concern. Yeah, there are lots of write-ups where it's like, yeah, the assistant just put his finger over the end and flipped it over and then took his finger out once it was in the container of mercury, and I'm like, what? (laughs) Is that true? Do we know what happened to Vincenzo?
1: (laughs) (laughs) So this experiment continued from there, because as Torricelli observed the tube and the container of mercury, he noticed that the height of the mercury in the tube changed from day to day, eventually worked out that this shift came from changes in atmospheric pressure, which were affecting both the surface of the mercury and the open container and the contents of the tube. But Torricelli never published any of this work. This is kind
2: of the inverse of another story that we've talked about on the show that involved Torricelli's mentor, Galileo. Uh, As you may recall from our Thomas Harriot episode from 2019, Harriot was the first to observe the moon through a telescope, but he didn't publish his findings. Galileo did the same thing several months later, did publish, and so he was credited with that achievement of having looked at the moon through a telescope first. For centuries, he got that credit.
1: Torricelli's lack of motivation to publish regarding this experiment is not really a reflection of how important it was. In some ways, it's indicative of that fact and his knowledge that it was going to create a lot of contention. The concept of vacuum had been debated at this point for centuries. The phrase horror vacui, which we know more commonly in English as nature abhors a vacuum, that's attributed to Aristotle. He was one of the many scientists and philosophers throughout history who believed that vacuums could not happen in nature.
2: So as an aside that is unrelated to this topic, but just in case you have run into that term before, horror vacui is also used to describe the visual art concept that humans fear empty space, That is obviously different than what we're talking about here, even though the roots of it are similar.
1: The idea of vacuum was not just one that people disbelieved. There had been heated arguments over it since Aristotle, effectively separating the world of thinkers into two camps. Aristotle's idea was that a void would just automatically be filled, because it was a void. But Galileo sought to understand the mechanics that were at play. The concept of equilibrium was already established in terms of a fluid flowing from one vessel to a connected vessel until the two achieved a state of rest. But this concept of a vacuum creating suction was one that Galileo was puzzling out. To him, the fact that you could lift water in a well up to a certain point but no further indicated that there was a more specific mechanism to it than Aristotle's thoughts, About voids just being automatically filled. (laughs)
2: Yes, it'll just fill. It will just fill. Which is a a fun and simple way to think about it, but not quite. Um, And Torricelli was developing that experiment with the mercury in a tube because he had come to understand the effects of pressure that were in play. He was not surprised by the behavior of the mercury. He had understood that air in the atmosphere had weight, and that created pressure at the Earth's surface, and he knew that because Mercury had greater density than water, he could do this experiment at a reduced scale without having to find a way to flip something 10 or more meters tall filled with water.
1: Incidentally, there was another mathematician working on a similar effort to produce a vacuum based on Galileo's writings. Gasparo Berti of Padua had started working on it before Torricelli had. That was when Galileo was still alive, but he had also died not long afterward. Berti's version of this attempted a more close replication of the whole well water problem, using water in a 10-meter lead tube. But because of his death, his experiment was not written about until several years after Evangelista Torricelli's. So we're going to talk more
2: about Torricelli's desire to keep his work on this particular problem out of the spotlight. But first, we will hear from the sponsors that keep Stuff You Missed in History class going.
0: Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639.
3: You're listening to this podcast, so I know you care about history and what a period we're living through right now, specifically when it comes to the situation in Israel and Gaza. Right now, you're hearing a lot of loud voices screaming about genocide, massacre, and occupation. But these words, slogans, and various headlines are not enough to help you understand what is happening over there. And that's where this podcast comes in. Check out Unpacking Israeli History. Catch up on previous seasons and enjoy new episodes from Season 6 each week, where they cover many of the topics that are relevant to what's going on in Israel today. From the history of infamous terror groups like Hamas and Hezbollah, to the story of Nakba, to Israel's disengagement from Gaza in 2005, There's so much to uncover. Unpacking Israeli history cuts through the noise and helps you understand Israel's present through understanding Israel's history. So educate yourself. Learn the history behind the headlines. Find Unpacking Israeli History wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: couple of letters from Torricelli's life that really make it apparent that while other mathematicians and philosophers were locked in this battle about whether or not a vacuum could truly be created and what that meant for the state of human understanding and even religion, Torricelli wanted nothing to do with that conflict. His writings to a colleague about his mercury experiment just describe what he did. And then he simply writes, quote, "...many have said that the vacuum does not exist, others that it can exist but only with difficulty and against the repugnance of nature." Undoubtedly, seeing Galileo's trial in his early career made him very wary of wading into dangerous waters in terms of ideologies. But he was also very poetic in describing his realization about barometric pressure, writing to his friend, quote, "...we live submerged at the bottom of an ocean of the element air, which by unquestioned experiments is known to have weight."
1: because of Torricelli's understanding that the pressure of the atmosphere changed the level of mercury in this column, he's credited with developing the first barometer. The Greek word baros means weight, which is where the barometer got its name. It references the weight of the atmosphere. All of his thoughts on the matter as we know them are contained in two letters. Both were written in June of 1644 to Michelangelo Ricci, who was a cardinal in the Catholic Church and also a mathematician. Ricci's response letter included the hope that his friend Evangelista wouldn't be, quote, too disgusted by the bold opinions of the theologians and their habit of bringing God into discussions of natural science, an area that they should treat with greater respect.
2: Yeah, I find it fascinating as a whole side thing about how many mathematicians were also um, in positions as religious leaders. And really, there were a number of them trying to keep it separate and be like, no, no, we could talk about the math Mm -hmm. in a pure sense, and not involve theology. uh, And I'm sure that had to have been a very difficult line to walk. Uh, But eventually, uh, word did get out. (laughs) Presumably, Ricci spilled the beans somewhere. And other scientists tried this experiment as well, including Blaise Pascal. They all had the same results as Torricelli. This was a moment not to be underestimated in its impact in terms of, you know, the, the... timeline of science, because through this experiment, which was easily repeatable, that belief stated by Aristotle and held up as truth for almost 2,000 years at that point that vacuums were not part of the natural world was suddenly disproven. When you consider that, it is no wonder that Torricelli did not want to get involved in the fallout.
1: One of the other well-known projects that Evangelista Torricelli worked on during this period was a calculation of the area of space created by a cycloid curve. That's a repeating curve traced by a point on a circle as it rolls along a straight line. Torricelli, as many other mathematicians had tried before him, worked on figuring out the area that one rotation created when it was bound by the straight line that the circle was rolling along. This was something that Galileo had worked on as well. He had in mind that it could be applied to the arches of a bridge, and he received correspondence from René Descartes and Pierre de Fermat on this matter. They all struggled with this, but Torricelli figured it out after finding a solution in Galileo's papers that the French mathematician had sent several years before Galileo's death. That was in 1638, and he worked from that. Another of Galileo's concepts
2: that Torricelli continued to work on after Galileo died was the science of motion that Galileo wrote about in Two New Sciences, though he also knew that it wasn't received by all of the intellectuals of the day with favor. This includes the parabolic motion of projectiles that we mentioned earlier, which inspired Castelli to suggest Evangelista as Galileo's assistant. And the approach that Torricelli took in these ideas was kind of unique, and one which he was aware of— Uh, Again, he's trying to avoid problems, writing in a letter to a friend, quote, "...many times, to avoid controversies, I have deliberately protested repeatedly and clearly in my books on motion that I write for philosophers rather than bombardiers." Meaning that he really preferred to think about these concepts in the abstract to keep the mind constantly considering possibilities rather than attempting literal proofs and probably causing an argument. Even so, despite that fact, he did always include data that he acquired from real-world tests and observations.
1: In 1644, Torricelli published Opera Geometrica, which covered his work in projectile motion and fluid motion, as well as his work in geometry. The solution to the cycloid curve problem was included in this work.
2: Yep, but not that mercury experiment. Uh, As Torricelli's work was discussed by other mathematicians of the day, including the unpublished work on creating a vacuum. It became especially popular among French thinkers, and this was bolstered to some degree by an experiment in which two identical mercury tubes were set up, as described by Torricelli, were assembled at the base of Puy-de-Dôme, a volcanic lava dome in central France. One barometer was kept at the base of the dome, and the other was carefully carried up this surface. As the altitude increased and thus the atmospheric pressure changed, the level of the mercury changed, and this experiment was something of a revelation, and it gave French scientists a chance to start applying data to this entire concept because they were measuring the height that the device had been carried to against the level of the mercury and started creating, like,
1: you know, a little chart and table of numbers about it. But while his findings were shared and discussed throughout France, Evangelista discovered that there were problems in your work becoming so well-known Uh, that really had nothing to do with the dogmatic debates that he had been really carefully sidestepping up to this point. As his work became more popular, there was suddenly a rush of claims that other scientists had already done some of the experiments that he had, or had already figured out some of the calculations that he had developed in Italy.
2: This led Torricelli to grow progressively more concerned that others may actually argue over arbitration of his work and might claim that that work that he had done was actually their own. He made a plan to combat this issue. Uh, He was going to publish a volume of letters that he had exchanged with scientists and mathematicians in France, essentially publishing dated proof that he had introduced the ideas to the French. But this effort fell short because Torricelli simply ran out of time.
1: Torricelli died in Florence, Italy, on August 25th, 1647. It's not clear what he died from. There are references to him having some sort of disease, but there's really not anything more specific than that. As he neared the last hours of his life, he gave his remaining unpublished work to a friend to be produced for the public, but even with other colleagues promising to help in that effort, it sputtered out. None of his contemporaries got his work into print. Yeah, he was uh, just 39 when he died, and because he never published
2: his work on his mercury experiments, the images that we have, like the drawings of of what that were, which are engravings, uh, of his device are from after his death. The first time an image of his mercury tube appeared in print was not until 1667. The most commonly seen image of a Torricellian tube is from 200 years later when it appeared in the 1867 book Les Marveilles de la Science. That's the marvels of science. And that was by French scientist Louis Figuier. And that work, incidentally, does also feature a plate uh, of Duke Ferdinando II questioning Galileo about the function of water pumps on his land. So that may be the source of where that story comes from, the Duke, rather than Galileo just thinking about this problem on his own.
1: Over time, some of his work was lost. It was in the early 20th century that the surviving work was published over four volumes as Oper di Evangelista Torricelli. That was a project initiated by his hometown of Faenza. Uh, that town had already erected a statue of Torricelli all the way back in 1864 to commemorate his life.
2: Yeah, he's their hometown hero. Um one of those people that you think about uh, again—we've discussed many times—like great, great thinkers and geniuses who die very young, and who p- probably would have done a lot more if they had not. Yeah. <laughs> to keep things going with what appears to be some sort of vacuum obsession that I claim I don't have, um, I do have a listener mail about our vacuum cleaner episode. This is from our listener, Allison, who writes, Hi, Ollie and Tracy. I have been a devoted listener since 2013. I look forward to all your episodes. Recently, we were on a two week trip out west visiting family and seeing amazing sights all that to say, I am catching up on your podcast and just finished your July 5th podcast about the vacuum. To say I was excited is an understatement. I grew up and live in North Canton, Ohio, where the Hoover vacuum was made. In fact, I live just down the street from the house where it was initially made. It is a cute little museum now. As a child, many of my friend's parents worked in the factory as engineers or manufacturers. Our identity as a town was deeply connected to being the home of the Hoover company. The plant is a pretty red brick building in the center of town, and as a child, I remember driving by and looking in the windows to watch the vacuums being made. I even had a tour of the factory in elementary school. Sadly, today, the original plant sits empty, waiting for the company who bought it to renovate it. That's a long story. (laughs) Our town is still vibrant and a great place to live, and we are proud of our history. Thank you for all your hard work and fantastic episodes. I know you like pictures of pets, but to my children's disappointment, we do not have any. I wanted to include a picture of us petting wild burrows and South Dakota, and the bison from Yellowstone, but I'm not sure how to do it since I already started this email on my phone. Being in my 40s and working with technology makes me feel old. (laughs) Have a great day, Allison. Allison, this is delightful. Um, Yeah, it is interesting, right? There are so many towns that we think about in the U.S., certainly, that are associated with a particular industry or manufacturer, and that really does become the town's identity in many ways. But of course, as evidenced by Allison's note. Sometimes that gets uh, you know, kind of uh, takes a gut punch from companies buying each other and, you know, mm-hmm. corporate movements. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but I I would love to see something like that restored and made into a giant museum because I want everything to be made into a giant museum. So thank you for <laughs> writing us. Uh, if you would like to, you can also do that at historypodcast.iheartradio.com You can also find us on social media as Missed in History. And if you would like to subscribe to the show, you can do that in the